This episode of Epicenter is brought to you by Microsoft Azure. Configure and deploy a consortium blockchain network in just a few clicks with pre-built configurations and enterprise-grade infrastructure. Spend less time on blockchain scaffolding and more time building your application. To learn more, visit aka.ms slash epicenter. Welcome on Epicenter, episode 278, with Michael Kodner and Daniel Lemberg, two co-developers from the Grim implementation of the Mimblewimble protocol. I am Federica Ernst. And my name is Sunny Agarwal. And so, uh, like Frederica mentioned, today we have two of the developers from Grin. Uh, you know, I kind of, Grin is this very interesting project that has a very interesting backstory that we'll uh, get into today. And, you know, I kind of heard about them very early on in their, you know, creation with the Mimblewimble protocol first came out and kind of ignored it for a while. And then in the last couple of months, like, you know, it just suddenly gained a lot of adoption. They launched very recently, just last month in January. Uh, they're one of like, I think probably the few projects who've announced a launch date and actually met their launch deadlines, which is, you know, very cool. Um, and just, you know, one disclaimer is I am currently, uh, actively mining Grin. Uh, so just a little bit of a disclaimer there. Let's, uh, jump into the episode. Today on Epicenter, we have on with us Michael Cordner and Daniel Landberg, uh, two of the core developers of the Grin uh, blockchain, which implements this very interesting protocol called Mimblewimble. And so, you know, throughout Epicenter, you know, we've briefly touched on Mimblewimble here and there. A lot of like, you know, we've had Adam back on before and Greg Maxwell, and they've like slightly touched on Mimblewimble, mentioned it in passing as like, you know, future scaling options. But, you know, we never really got a chance to fully deep dive into Mimblewimble. And, you know, it's this very interesting protocol where, like, you know, uh, offers a lot of, like, you know, in a ways it's very similar to, like, the Bitcoin protocol. Like, uses a lot of the same cryptography and a lot of, like, the same intellectual bases. But, you know, brings a lot of these really cool features. And, you know, it has this really cool backstory to it, which, you know, we'll cover throughout the uh, course of this episode. But, you know, before we get started, but, you know, before we jump into that, uh, Michael and Daniel, thank you guys both for being on. And, uh, you know, uh, Michael, maybe uh, you can introduce yourself, how you got started into the space, like, you know, before even getting into Grin and Mimblewimble. And then, Daniel, maybe you could do the same. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, thanks for having us. Um, well, to start, so my name is Michael Cordner, and I go by the name Yeast Plume uh, in Grin circles. That would be my handle. Um, and I've been working on Grin for, I'd say we're coming up on, on nearly two years, maybe a little less than two years. Um, at first, just as a, as a part-time developer contributor. But from about, um, say, February of last year, uh, I've been working on Grin full-time um, using donations uh, given to Grin by the community. Um, so previous to Grin, I was, I mean, I have about 20 years worth of kind of overall software development experience ranging from like financial to games to kind of to educational software. So so I think kind of a, a good broad background there. Um, immediately previous to, to working on Grin, um, I was doing kind of a lot of low-level cryptographic work on um, in the smart card industry, which has a bit of crossover with, um, with the cryptocurrency industry when it comes to hardware wallets and what have you. So um, yeah, so that's basically my background and why I'm here today. Cool. And how did you get, uh, you know, get started with Bitcoin? Is like Grin sort of like the first uh, blockchain project you've worked on? 
it's, it's the first one I've worked on properly. I mean, I've been following Bitcoin and, and derivatives for, for quite some time, but it was only kind of, kind of recently, as I got kind of more of a, got better at applied cryptography through previous jobs. And then the more kind of cryptocurrencies tended to appeal to me because I realized it, it kind of pushes all my buttons when it comes to interests, to technical interests rather. I see. Very cool. And Daniel, yeah, what about you? Uh, how did you get involved? Sure. Thank you for having us. Uh, I, I I work as a product manager uh, for a gaming company. Uh, I've been there for, for the past 12 years. Uh, lately, I've been doing new product development. Uh, and I heard about Grin the first time, I think, uh, a year ago. And uh, started reading up on it, uh, starting uh, to get kind of watch the space a little bit, read the Git chats and so on. And then... Uh, becoming more and more invo involved, uh, mainly on kind of the project management side and the governance side. Uh, and um, I've been following the blockchain space for a long time. This is my first project. Uh, I heard about Bitcoin in 2011, dismissed it, and then bought uh, bought a Bitcoin in 2013. Uh, and then kind of been monitoring the space, uh, but, but being quite comfortable watching from the sidelines uh, until I stumbled upon Grin and... Uh, its structure, the way um, the ethos of the project was, and, and you know the approach taken in in, in developing it uh, made it really attractive and made it really easy to participate. So I just kind of got sucked in. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so most of the grid developers um, are actually anonymous, right? But you guys are here on the show using your clear names. You also go to conferences with your clear names. Um, what what uh, made you decide to go public with your identities? Well, well, actually, I, I probably wouldn't say most are anonymous now. I think there's only two, really, who have chosen to remain completely anonymous. And that's Ignosis, the founder, which I'm sure we'll talk about him more later. And then uh, we have another developer, Antioch Peveril, which in Harry Potter lore is his brother, who, who also chooses to remain anonymous. But the rest of us are fairly fairly out and in the open. I mean, from my, my own perspective, uh, I probably just didn't know any better when I first got involved with the project. So that's why I'm out in the open. But also because I'm taking funding from various sources. I feel it's a bit, it's it's better to be out there so people know who they're dealing with and, and you know, I can be out there on, on podcasts and, and promote Grin uh, without having to worry about that anon uh, that uh, invisibility cloak. <laughs> yeah, it's similar from my side. I mean, I I was aware there were anonymous developers uh, on the project, but the I, I just kind of did like a trade-off in the sense that, you know, in order to be really anonymous, uh, you have to put in a lot of effort to do that. And uh, I, I just didn't really see that, you know, either you do it, you know, the full way uh, or, or you don't do it at all. There's no point in it because if somebody needs to or wants to, is motivated enough to find your identity, they will. Uh, and, and I just didn't really see my see a need for it. I think a lot of the reason why we might feel comfortable uh, being out in, in with clear names is also because uh, the founder, Ignatius, is anonymous. Uh, it might have been a bit different if it wasn't for that. So you mean like over time, some of the core developers uh, who maybe were anonymous earlier have slowly started like revealing their identities over time? No, I mean, I, what I mean is, I mean, there's only two who are actually actively trying to hide their identities. Uh, the rest are just using uh, nicknames online. But that doesn't mean that they're actually trying to be uh, perfectly hiding in their identities, if you see what I mean. Oh, interesting. Okay. Everyone except for the people who are anonymous, we know personally, and we've met a few times now. Um, it, it's actually quite hard to keep yourself anonymous and do it well. Um, it's quite a time sink as well, and you have to be really kind of dedicated to it to do it, to be able to know, you know, 
know exactly what you're doing online and be able to cover all your tracks in all cases is, is challenging. So um, it's quite a lot of effort. That's, it's, it's interesting that that's uh, somewhat different to the public perception uh, that, that a lot of the uh, developers are actually anonymous, but that's probably just because, you know, the, the, the founder himself or herself uh, is anonymous. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Cool. So, you know, let's maybe let's jump into a little bit of this founding story then. And so, you know, I think there's, I, I, you know, I remember I was teaching a class on Bitcoin back in like 2015 or something. And I think that's around the time, you know, we, uh, when this, we were teaching this class, uh, we heard about this, like, oh, there's this new proposal that's been around that was just like posted on like, you know, I, I first saw it on r slash Bitcoin. Um, but, you know, can you, Tell us a little bit about this uh, story of how this white paper got put into the world and who put it there. Sure, I see. So, so I'll, I'll do that. Uh, so, so basically, there was um, this uh, IRC thread, uh, IRC group for Bitcoin developers. It was what's it called? Bitcoin Wizards, right? I think an anonymous person uh, basically came in there and, and dropped a paper uh, that. Um, uh, outlined the kind of the sketched out the kind of the basic concept of Mimblewimble, uh, which was then picked up by Andrew Polstra and I think Brian Bishop, Bishop as well, and they kind of had some interactions there. And Andrew Polstra, uh, Andrew Polstra formalized uh, some of the concepts in there into a paper, uh, and, and 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 took it from there. Right, because from what I remember, like you know, the original document wasn't even like you know, it was like literally just a text a .txt file that was just yeah. dropped in there, and it had like it, it looked like just like you know some quick thoughts on like what this guy was thinking and like some ideas, and um, also you know for the listeners, one of the you know one of the cute little st story things there is like it was signed like the, the anonymous person they signed them themselves using the name Tom Elvis Jadosaur which is like, uh, you know, the French name of Voldemort, like in the English versions, it's Tom Marvolo Riddle. Um, so it's the French alias. Um, so yeah, do you guys have any like, you know, guesses as to who it may have been? Like, you know, I've heard like, you know, clearly in the text file, a lot of these ideas were heavily derived from like Greg Maxwell's previous works, like CoinJoin and Confidential Transactions. So, you know, I've heard Greg, I, I've heard it posited that, you know, it may have just been Greg himself or... Do you guys have any like theories on who this was or is it not even like of interest to you and you actually don't even care to find out? I don't, I don't personally have any theories on it. Um, it, it would be interesting as, as you just said there, I think that's kind of key. Um, there were a lot of the Mimble Wimble paper. It builds a lot, a lot of builds upon a lot of ideas that were already there and kind of developed by established cryptographers. The, the actual kind of portion of it that, that, makes up Mimblewimble is just kind of a small insight slash addition to what was already presented before. So whoever it was didn't necessarily have to be a great cryptographer. It was certainly a great flash of insight wherever it came from. But um, no, to me, I mean, I don't think we're ever going to find out who it is. And even if, the, even if whoever it is makes themselves known, no one's probably no one will believe them at this point. So <laughs> I think we just have to leave it as a, as a mythical creation story at this point. Right. There was like no cryptographic signature or anything all over the file. So there's not even any way to know who, like no one could even prove it at this point anyways. Just a text file. Right. Uh, yeah. And so what was uh, Andrew Polstra's contribution here? So, you know, I remember, so, so this uh, file was just posited and then 
like, you know, what was the original kind of response to this? Where did people like immediately realize that, oh, there's like something big here? Or was it more of like people like, oh, okay, another proposal. And Andrew Polsho was like, did it take time for him to realize that, oh, there's actually something like, you know, much more insightful in this document here? Um, it, it took, I mean, I wasn't around in the early days, but from what I can see, um, and Andrew Polstra had to look over it um, just to make sure that it was sound. Um, I think there was a mistake or two in there that he eventually corrected. And I mean, he was interested enough from that to write a, a further white paper on how an entire Mimblewimble blockchain would work. Um, and I mean, he published a further kind of a proper white paper based on that, uh, which is a little bit outdated at this point. But and then he, he had some other kind of additions to it of, <clears throat> that um, you may have seen some presentations of his about, about how to do some additions to it script to script. Because there's no scripts in Mimblewimble, there's a lot of um, a lot of things that you can do in Bitcoin, or it's obvious how to do in Bitcoin via scripting that you can't necessarily do as obviously in Mimblewimble, but you can still do it. So a lot of kind of additions to the, the protocol like that, some of them theoretical, some of them real fixes to what was there. Um, and... I think that was it. I mean, after the publication of those papers, I mean, he hangs around if we, if we need to get a hold of him to ask him any questions and he's there, but he, he hasn't been too, too active now over, I'd say about the past year, either just busy or working on other things at this point. So, yeah. That's interesting. So in a way it's, um, it's unusual for someone to actually pick up a proposal by someone else completely and so deeply immerse yourself in it that you actually find mistakes and can add to it substantially and make it into a fully fledged proposal. What, what would you say um, helped um, for this to happen? I mean, do you think this is just um, a lucky break for Mimblewimble? Are there tons of those proposals out there that just someone needs to pick up and make into something great? Um, or or did, did Andrew look at this and saw the gem in the dirt? And, you know, you know how, how, how do you think about this? If you drop a, a new proposal for something or a new idea on, on a, in a place like Bitcoin Wizards, it will generally get looked at fairly quickly by by some serious you know serious people in the industry um so i, I do genuinely think that this it's not just a matter of, of getting lucky or you know being filtered somehow it was genuinely a very very you know transformative insight on what was already there so um yeah like i say i've seen we've seen plenty of papers go there's actually another paper put down by someone claiming to be the same voldemort in this in a similar style that was dropped uh maybe about six months ago um, and that was looked at and completely trashed by the community as going, no, this makes absolutely no sense that this, and you know, to the point where this is probably not the same, the same Voldemort, or if it was, he got lucky that one time. So, so yeah, I, I don't think there's an element to that. Like, I think there's a genuine, if you have a good idea and you present it in the crypto space, it will get considered generally. Yeah. And I think he was, I mean, the, the original text file was, you know, far from perfect. As you said, it, it had some uh, errors in it as well, but it was actually presented very succinctly and in a very approachable way, uh, which also helps, of course, because it makes it easy for anybody who's reviewing it to, to understand whether there's some merit to, to these arguments or not. And because it was building on already established concepts that were already popular in the space, that also made it much easier. So how did how did it continue on from there? So how how fast did uh, this proposal that, that that was then transformed by Andrew Polstra, How how fast did it pick up steam? How 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 fast did developers actually come on board? 
Well, the the first, I, I mean, Andrew wrote the paper, and then I think it was kind of not quite forgotten about, but you know, put aside for a couple of months. It was only when um when now Igno someone by the name of Ignotus Peveril, who is the founder of the project, um, appeared again on the same channel. I, I think it was around around December of two thousand and sixteen, roughly. I think I think even October. I think if I remember Quentin's presentation, so it was quite fast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and then he said, "I this was I've actually started a an open source version of this and uploaded the code and invited everyone to take a look." And I think it was it's clear kind of from the early conversations that there was a it was almost obviously apparent that that this Ignosis Peveril person knew what he was doing and you know had put up a, was starting a really serious effort to put together a, a Mimblewimble blockchain. And then I think I think also there was yeah a few months later. Uh, towards December, the, the Mimblewimble uh, mailing list was established, which probably also helped uh, a lot in kind of taking the project forward. There was a lot of discussion going on with a lot of uh, noteworthy and kind of well-known people in the field uh, contributing. Uh, it's also kind of helped raise the awareness of the project itself. This episode of Epicenter is brought to you by Microsoft and the Azure Blockchain Workbench. Getting your blockchain from the whiteboard to production can be a big undertaking. And something as simple as connecting your blockchain to IoT devices or existing ERP systems is a project in itself. Well, the folks at Microsoft have you covered. You already know about the Azure Blockchain Workbench and how easy it makes bootstrapping your blockchain network pre-configured with all the cloud services you need for your enterprise app. Their new development kit is the IFTTT for blockchains. Suppose you want to collect data from someone in a remote location via SMS, and have that data packaged in a transaction for your Hyperledger Fabric blockchain. The development kit allows you to build this integration in just a few steps in a simple drag and drop interface. Here's another great example. Perhaps you're an institution working with Ethereum and rely on CSV files sent by email. One click in the dev kit and you can parse these files and have the data embedded in transactions. Whatever you're working with, the dev kit can read, transform, and act on the data. To learn more and to build your first application in less than 30 minutes, visit aka.ms epicenter. And be sure to follow them on Twitter at MSFT Blockchain. We'd like to thank Microsoft and Azure for their support of Epicenter. Maybe now we can kind of start talking a little bit about like, so we keep saying this like Mimblewimble blockchain and this Mimblewimble protocol, but like, you know, what even is this Mimblewimble protocol? And so, you know, maybe we can start off with like, Let's assume our listeners are, you know, relatively very familiar with the Bitcoin protocol. Um, how would you explain uh, Mimblewimble to them, and you know, and kind of explain what's going on here? Right. Okay. Well, I, I think it's rather than just kind of jumping in, into the mechanics of it, we should we should say what what the goals of it are, um, and that would be to yeah, provide absolutely. to provide um, what I call very good privacy um, intrinsic to the blockchain. So you know, on some other other coins that may have been may have been originally derived from Bitcoin, um, the privacy would, would kind of be bolted on in certain ways. Um, like so, you know, other coins like Monero would kind of, kind of have a few different ways. But the core of the chain itself would kind of be the, the classic Bitcoin chain, as in the, a ledger of transactions going back forever. With the Mimblewimble protocol, you have the 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 privacy built right into the core level. So if I put if I perform a transaction what ends up on the chain is is basically it looks like random data and this um the way this is done also allows um some other interesting properties to come out of there such as um 
a, a, a positive effect on the transaction size or on the chain size. It ends up, you end up getting a, a much the same privacy as other coins with a much greatly reduced um, storage space requirements, um, as well as some other kind of nifty features that add onto it, all of which kind of add together to um, enhance privacy without kind of the, the bloat that you may get in some other chains. So that's kind of fundamentally what, what Nimblewimble itself is about. So you see it as the, the primary benefit being the privacy side of things. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, it's built in. It's at the, at the protocol level. It's not optional. Interesting. Because I remember when I like first heard about Mimblewimble, I always actually usually, I heard about it in the context of, you know, scalability and like, you know, uh, increasing the sync times of like of, of the chain. But then I, I feel like I only started actually hearing about like the privacy benefits, like, you know, later on. So it's interesting that like, you know, I, I guess I just, I, obviously I haven't been as involved with it. So, you know, I, I guess I kind of heard, of, I didn't really hear about the privacy side of things until much later on. It's definitely like, it's, it's a privacy coin. It's a confidentiality coin. And that, that would pretty much be the, from our perspective, at least the number one, the number one reason for it being um, the scalability stuff is certainly nice to have. And it's, it's something that, that we're, we're improving on as time goes on, you know, finding ways to make it even more scalable. Um, how do we, you know, reduce the size of the UTXO set, et cetera. We'll probably talk about some more technical details later on. Yeah, and maybe it's it's good to kind of point out that yeah, there's the Mimblewimble protocol uh, which we talked about, which was kind of dropped on the the IRC channel and everything, and then you have uh, Grim, which is an implementation of the Mimblewimble protocol, uh, but it's so much more than that as well. Of course, it's not only the, the the protocol itself, but a bunch of other things and and different approaches and philosophies uh, that add to that essentially, and they're kind of the key key things that kind of really stand out in terms of implement, implementation-wise uh, from, from Green, I think, is, is that it's, it tries to be very privacy-preserving to the greatest extent possible. I, it tries to be uh, scalable, uh, and, and it tries to be minimal in the approach that it takes and in its design as a, as a, as a, as a blockchain uh, in general to, to be very kind of light, lightweight. Uh, and, and that kind of contributes also to, to the privacy aspects because you don't want to put a lot of information on the chain and so on. You, you want to do as little as possible, basically. And that, that adds to, has like some nice uh, properties to it. There's no, uh, there's no addresses on the chain, for example, and, and, and so on, which it, it contributes to it being lightweight, but it also helps in, in, uh, in the privacy aspects of it. So I see. Um, the privacy aspect is uh, the main feature of Mimbo, but uh, the scalability is also uh, one further add-on that you one further add-on benefit that you get. Um, could you brief, briefly explain how it works on a technical level? Yeah, that, I mean, um, this is kind of it, it is a bit difficult to do without um, without whiteboards and, and a bit of time and and dealing with confused stairs, but. Um, Basically, in, instead of how Bitcoin works is you have a ledger of, of transactions going back to the beginning of to the Genesis block, basically, and you need to, to verify each and every you know, transaction in order to start a new node. Mimblewimble works a, a bit more mathematically. So, so rather than the, the ledger itself or having to validate the ledger itself, you just need to validate the sum of what's happened before. So when I put... Um, Maybe I can try and walk through a bit of a, a transaction example. If, if I perform a transaction, right, I have inputs and outputs, and uh, transactions are basically um, a load of inputs plus a, plus a bunch of outputs 
and it doesn't matter how many there are, it doesn't matter how many participants there are, um, just the number of in, the the amount of the inputs that have gone in have to equal the amount of the outputs that have come out. Okay, so long as that's true, um, then the transaction is valid. Now, on top of that, we have something called um, an excess value, which is used to prove, which is used um, to enhance privacy as well as uh, prove ownership of something. So, say I have a load of trans a load of inputs, and it adds up to a certain number. Um, I will then choose a private key that represents another addition to that number, and only I know that number. So, uh, and that's my private key. So, in order to validate that inputs plus outputs plus my um, private key that I've chosen, which is an excess value, everything equals zero, um, I can do that without actually having to store the values of the amounts in there, right? So validators can just add this all together, check it all, check everything equals zero and move on. So that, that's fundamentally what happens on a, a Mimblewimble blockchain. Does that make any sense? It does. Um, so I, th I think it's, it's, it's actually really difficult to explain with, without a whiteboard, as you said. Um, but would, would you say it's fair to describe it as being um, cryptography that is well known and is also used for Bitcoin um, with additional elements for obfuscation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we basically use the, the same library that's used in Bitcoin. We use the same the same curve. It, it's, it's all based on the same fundamental mathematics. It's just the way we're kind of putting it together is slightly unique for Mimblewimble. Okay, and so this results in a blockchain where um, not only the transaction uh, amounts are obfuscated, it's, uh, it's also obfuscated where they're coming from and where they're going. Um, and uh, that's would you would you say that's factually correct? Yeah, it is correct. I mean, I wouldn't even say they're obfuscated; yeah. they're just not there. Yeah, there's not, and also I should say, you know, that, that this is no, there are no addresses on the chain. So of course you're not going to see from where it's going, uh, but there is a chain of of outputs of UTXOs essentially on chain, right? But it, it's very hard to derive um, making any sense of that. That's basically the only information that is on there. So if there's no addresses, right? So, you know, how do uh, signatures work in the system? Right. Well, well a, sign a signature, uh, it, it's a signature basically proves that I had that, that excess value that I was talking before, um, because I've, that's, that's what I use to sign the outputs that I put into a transaction. Right. So, I mean, the, the blockchain itself, it's kind of, it's outputs all the way down. There's no transactions on there. And in order to spend an output, um, I need to ensure that I have this excess value for each and every output that I put on there. And then all of these added together become, um, I have to prove I knew the sum of all of these and then validate that I can sign with that and validators will be able to use that to, to prove, you know, to witness the thing and to prove that I had the right to spend it. I see. So essentially what's going to happen here is like, you know, there's some excess value in this last transaction that was sent to me and yeah. I am the only one who has knowledge of it and I'm able, and by revealing that, proving that knowledge of that, I'm, I'm the only one who's able to spend this. But yeah. how did this uh, excess value get into the previous transaction? So, you know, how did, yeah, how, why is it in the outputs from the previous transaction if I did... Like, didn't that mean that whoever sent me the coins had to have known that excess value? 
right? No, they knew their access value. But when when a transaction happens, I create a new one which represents my thing. So what happens is um, someone sends me a bunch of inputs for a certain amount, and then I will create and as well as um, the signature will contain their access value, um, and that gets sent to me. And what I do is I create my own access value and create an output for that amount, right? And then I have one output that I know the access value for, and then I can validate all the inputs that came into the, the transaction from the other person equal that amount. So the sum is there, and that's how that's how that's validated. Right. So one of the the key uh, features or differences here with the Mimblewimble system is that in order to receive money, I have to actually like you know be part of the transaction making process, right? That's right. And in the cryptographic trend, we say that's an interactive transaction. Um, and that's distinct. It doesn't mean you need to be online. It doesn't mean it doesn't have any of those connotations. It just means um, two parties need to interact to, to they need to exchange information somehow. And that can be on the Internet via HTTP. It can be via sending files to each other. Uh, it can be via you know, tin can on a string. It just has to happen somehow. Does this have any implications for the user experience? As opposed, you know, when you compare it to sending, say, bitcoins. Oh yeah, tons of it. It's it's uh, you know it's a it's a very very different uh, uh, experience, and and so for for good and bad as well, right? So 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 it's just different, I would say. Uh, so so as Michael said, there's a you know full round trip is required to c complete the transaction, which means that I as a sender need to send you some information. You take that information, you you process that, return it back to me, then I can finalize it and put it on the chain. Right, uh, but that also means that in order for uh, you know, unlike for example Bitcoin, where you can just kind of in the blind shoot uh, transactions to addresses, uh, here actually both parties need to participate in order to receive, which in some cases can sound like it's a lot of hassle or work, but in other uh, uh, cases it's actually really good because then you can actually, if you want to make sure you have to keep like an audit trail or like kind of keep your finances in order, you can ensure that you. You have full control of the funds that you receive because you're actually actively participating in in receiving them. If you see what I mean, nobody can kind of spam you with with uh, with a bunch of transactions. Right. Some people actually may actually see this as a pro because I remember um, about a couple of weeks ago, this is like YouTuber who I like kind of follow. Uh, his name is Tom Scott, and he kind of got into an argument with uh, Brendan Ike, who is working on, as you know, Brave or Basic Attention Token. And he was kind of getting upset that in Brave, uh, in, in basic attention token, and so and really any most cryptocurrencies today, Bitcoin, Ethereum, that people have the ability to send you money without your like you know consent essentially, and this could have like weird sort of legal or regulatory consequences. And so you know, to some people, they might actually see this as a pro and like help the like adoption from like a legal perspective as well. Absolutely, and also from like um, you know from a from the from the from the point of like being a mer merchant, right? And, and you send you know instructions to your your customer how to pay you. Uh, it, it prevents a lot of user error as well because if a user does something wrong, uh, you you'll hopefully you, you'll detect that as part of building that transaction, and you can reject those transactions rather than the user sending it to the wrong address, uh, getting that processed, and then saying, "Hey, where's my where's my money?" Uh, where's my where's my stuff? And the, you have this kind of disconnect where you try to figure out what actually happened here. Uh, it, it's much easier to do that uh, in an interactive protocol where the merchants can kind of sense check uh, whether it's the correct uh, behavior and this expected behavior from the customer. 
but it is it is also like I should say it's a, it's a different paradigm than like what's usually being done today in blockchains. So there is like a lot of kind of extra effort or thinking that 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 goes into it uh, from from like merchant perspective and also from users perspective. So so it is it is a kind of a different uh, um, approach that that we're taking. Okay, so in, in Mimblewimble, um, wallets interact to create privacy-preserving interactions. How does this help with scalability? Right, there's a few things. I think most simply, in order to sync up, if I'm a new node on the network, in order to sync up, I don't need to have the whole history of the chain behind me. Um, I, need, I simply need to have the headers, and I seem to simply need to have um, enough of something we call the transaction kernel, which, which contains all of the all of the signatures to date to make sure that they add up to zero. And I need to make sure that those all add up. So instead of, you know, if you if you think a new Bitcoin node, for instance, you're downloading the whole history. In this case, no, you just need to download the headers and then enough information to make sure that your sum or the sum of the entire chain equals zero. And then you should be good to go. I mean, it's only the early days for the Grin chain at the moment, but you can already see like the, the sync process is a few minutes and that should provided the header sync time kind of is fast enough that the sync time should remain fairly constant for a new node coming on, no matter how big the chain is. So that's certainly one advantage there. And um, there's other ones which are, are probably, they were mentioned in the paper, but um, they're probably in practice not quite as, quite as you know, good for, or quite as bountiful, say, for scalability. Um, one of them is the notion of cut through, um, which is if, if I send transaction, I send a transaction to somebody and they immediately send it to somebody else, I can actually cut out some of the outputs in the middle of that um, because everything will still add up. So I'm basically, I'm basically taking, you know, the same uh, number off both sides of an equation. Um, and yeah, uh, Daniel may have some, do you have anything to add as well? Yeah, I, uh, I think you covered it, uh, but I, I wanted to point out that, uh, you know, as part of that thinking process, uh, this is not like a, a light client sync or anything like that. This or SPV approach. It's it's actually like a full node sync, uh, and 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 it gives you like proper security guarantees, uh, and it's much faster than than uh, you know conventional approaches. Right. Yeah. I mean, so uh, I've actually been you know dabbling around with like the Grin nodes, and like I've been trying to run a Grin miner over the past like week or so. And so when I actually started, I I opened up my Grin node and it like synced in a matter of like 30 seconds or so. And not that like, you know, the Grin blockchain's only been around for a month anyway. So it's like, it wouldn't have been that long anyways, but it kind of just blew me away that like, I'm like, whoa, did it actually just sync? Like I probably messed something up. Like I need to try this again. Like it, it kind of blew my mind. Yeah, again, it's early days for the blockchain, but it's even after a month, like it should take longer. If it were a traditional blockchain, it would be taking longer already. So Right, exactly. And so that, that really amazed me there. Um, so with this cut through thing, so, you know, you're, so you're saying we can, you know, kind of like to give some intuition for the listeners, what, essentially what we can do here is once, uh, transactions have been spent, we can kind of like delete them from the chain. Essentially we're, we're aggregating everything that's already spent. And so all we have is the current, uh, UTXO set and nothing of the history, right? Is there, and so does that mean it's constant is there any like piece of data that has to stick around from the history or is it does it all completely like a hundred percent disappear 
No, no, the, the transaction kernels need to stay around, and that's probably the biggest um, po the biggest point against scalability or something we'd very much like to see. Um, there's no way to currently compress the kernels um, into, you know, and to sum them up, basically, like you can most other parts of the system. If you do figure that out one day, then we're going to have, have a very, very compact blockchain. I'm not even sure you can call it a, a chain anymore <laughs> at that point. Could you explain slightly what this kernel is like? Right, right. So the signature I was talking about earlier, um, there's a few there's a few things that most importantly is that signature that proves the value. And that's and that becomes part of a sum. So if I, I need to sum up all of the kernels in the blockchain, I'm basically I'm basically summing up everything that's ever happened. And so long as it equals zero, it doesn't matter how many there were or where they came from, then I know the chain is valid at that point. And that all has to be contained within the kernel, which unfortunately we haven't found a way to 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 get rid of at this point or or some i see um and so then one question another question here is um i'm sure you guys may have heard of a project called uh coda which is like they use sort of uh what they call recursive snarks uh to achieve actually somewhat very similar properties to what you're achieving here and so, but, you know, the, the benefit here is with snarks, you kind of, you know, you can do more than just these like basic transactions. You can kind of essentially, in theory, you, you know, you can essentially put any sort of computation into here, including like very complex smart contracts and whatnot. But, you know, it seems the con here is, you know, obviously they're depending on somewhat more complex cryptography. And so what, how do you, how do you see the comparison between uh, this Mimblewimble protocol and these Coda recursive snarks. Yeah, Mimblewimble itself, it, it's it's. It, they, they can see this as a as a positive or a negative, but because it is so succinct, the cryptography that's used, it's basically algebra on top of cryptography that there, and because it's so succinct and so kind of compact and kind of self-contained, it, it's difficult to kind of put any other stuff around it necessarily. So, like, there are no scripts in there. Um, but we, I mean, we were talking earlier about this notion of script to script. So there are there are ways, kind of other mathematical trick uh, tricks. A lot of them still still theoretical that could be employed on top of this. So that's that's kind of the the main difference, I think, that it's it's so succinct and so compact that it's difficult to sometimes add more functionality to it, or to think of how you're going to add functionality to it. And also, uh, it, it as you pointed out, it relies on uh, minimal. Uh, uh, security assumption that the discrete logarithm problem is hard, uh, and, and that's it. And, and, and uh, you know that's that, that that that's very very important and, and makes it a big difference. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, Mimble Wimble, it, it's zero knowledge all the way through. Zero knowledge proofs the all the way through. Then we did an episode on Coda a couple of months ago. So if you're interested, listener, uh, go check that out. Um, so um, how would you say does Mimblewimble compare to Zcash or Monero or other privacy-first chains? Um, from what perspective? From a technology technology perspective, or a... yeah, so from a functionality from a functionality and technology perspective. I mean, both of them kind of touch upon things we've talked about. Like, I, and again, I don't want to be disparaging to any of these projects. Um, I'm, this is purely a point of comparison, and we have a lot of respect for for, for Zcash and Monero in particular. Um, so, Zcash, when we were talking about it, it's it's it, it's based on the the snarks that we were talking about earlier. It's a, it's a completely trusted setup. Um, Mimblewimble itself, and any Mimblewimble coin is going to be completely zero knowledge. So. 
although there's no not, not like a key ceremony or anything to start it up it's all completely trustless um and the case of monero i mean they have a lot like you probably say more privacy features than what's in mimblewimble at the moment but a lot of that comes out in expense so um they use ring, ring signatures at some point they use um what's coming to mind right now but the, the all of the the kind of different methods they have of obfuscating transactions are kind of on top of, of a bitcoin like structure so and again um mimblewimble itself is just a very compact concise way of doing it so th those would be kind of the main comparison points i would also describe uh Monero is more kind of mature uh, compared to to uh, to what Green is, uh, but Green is simpler. Uh, there's a lot of more privacy features in, in Monero, but still Green is simpler and achieves kind of a, a lot uh, with a little uh, space and kind of approach, minimal approach. Uh, with Zcash, uh, you have uh, with fully shielded transactions better privacy properties, uh, but as uh, Michael was saying, requires a, a trusted setup and also has this problem of uh, uh, shielded versus unshielded transactions. So you don't have actually privacy on uh, by default uh, in, in, the, in the protocol itself, which is uh, um, uh, it's very different from, from, from Grin and that comes with its own kind of uh, problems. I know that Zcash uh, uh, companies and, and the foundation is actively working to improve that and have more and more transactions uh, going through the, the shielded ones, uh, which are more computationally expensive than the unshielded ones. Uh, but, but that's a big, big difference. And then we have governance approaches of these uh, of these two projects, which are which are generally different as well. So when you think of like you know the impact, like you know the effectiveness of a privacy solution, uh, how I usually like to think of it is like you know what is the privacy set, the anonymity set here, right? And so when you when you use Monero's ring signatures, you're basically choosing a couple of other transactions to mix in with. And the and your anonymity set is only the size of a few transactions. Like you know, you know, I think the default was about five or something. And then the idea is, as you keep making more transactions, it gets muddled. But in Zcash, the anonymity set is the entire set of all other shielded transactions, right? So how would you? What's the? And so clearly, the anonymity set of Zcash is much much larger than that of Monero. Where do? How would you describe the anonymity set of? Uh, Mimblewimble. Right. Um, with ring signatures in particular, I believe those are used mostly to, to cover up the, the transaction graph, as in if someone is, is following, you know, is monitoring nodes and is watching transactions, they can kind of start to piece together information about what's happening there. And then that's something that, that's an ongoing challenge. We always have discussions about that. Right now we have a protocol in place called called Dandelion, which is, an, you know, an attempt to, to, to hide, not completely conceal, but certainly make it more difficult for someone to follow a transaction graph. Uh, and that works by, instead of just, uh, when a node gets a transaction, it doesn't just burst it to, to every node it knows about. It actually follows during what we call a stem phase, sends it to one node, it sends it to another node, and to another node, and eventually, you know, randomly one of them will then do the, the fluff phase, which, which is uh, broadcast to all of the peers it knows. In terms of the anonymity set, in you know, in theory, uh, it, it you know because you're doing with Mimblewimble, you support uh, non-interactive coin joins. Uh, if, if, assuming that uh, the you know you can aggregate all the transactions uh, basically in, in a block, or you know send out an aggregated transaction and broadcast that out to the chain as well. Uh, so so you have a lot of kind of uh, there's a lot of opportunities to improve that anonymity set as it goes out. 
Yeah, well, like I say, I mean, if, if you're looking, if you look at the blockchain data, you have nothing else to go on. You're just looking at the contents of the chain of the UTXO set. There is, you can get absolutely nothing from it. There is no way to get anything from it. Um, and the, the points of the system and the anonymity set um, is very much based around how easy it is for someone to construct the transaction graph and reconstruct what happened. And it's something that we're continually working on through through various, you know, research into various technologies and, and additions to what we're doing. If like, you know, once transactions have made it onto the chain, it's essentially a coin join amongst all transactions that have happened. And so it does kind of give you a, you know, a very, very large anonymity set, but it doesn't solve the problem of, you know, the what of observing the peer to peer network. And, you know, anyone who's trying to break privacy will definitely be doing that. And, you know, I know companies have done this in the past, like chain analysis and whatnot. And so that's where this like dandelion comes in. And dandelion is sort of this like privacy feature in Grin that is actually, you know, completely independent of Mimblewimble. It's like a separate privacy feature. And so, you know, you described it a little bit about this like fluff thing, but can you, can you like describe it a little bit further? From my understanding, you can kind of think of it as this like Tor mixnet kind of thing for transactions. Is that like a, am, am I having the right mental model here or? I mean, I mean, Dandelion itself, there's a few things happening. Dandelion and Mimblewimble itself are very complementary technologies, okay? Because in order to to perform this, this coin join type aggregation that we've been talking about, um, it needs to be done in one way and one way only before it hits the chain. Because you could have problems if all, if, if all nodes everywhere are putting together transactions and lumping them together in different ways. And then you can end up with, with issues when they try to get to be reconciled, we get applied to the chain. Now with Dandelion, because Dandelion, um, there's a distinct phase where the a transaction is being sent from one node to the next node to another node, one at a time along the stem, as I was calling it. Um, that gives us an opportunity to apply this this coin join to transactions that we go along. So as a transaction as a transaction goes through the stem phase, it gets aggregated with a, with other transactions as it goes along. Um, until finally, since until finally it gets to uh, you know at some random point one node will randomly say right no more aggregation and then explode and then all of the nodes or all of its peers know about it and it gets propagated that way. So in Bitcoin so they, you do uh, you you do um, uh, the gloss, like you you basically every node kind of just immediately when they have uh, something to broadcast they broadcast it out to everybody they're connected to in the network right uh, and and here the, the purpose of Dandelion is basically to do that. But it's just not you who who, who does that kind of explosion, the gossip uh, protocol. You instead uh, pass the transaction that you have uh, through one or two directions, uh, and and then there's basically a coin flip between for every node uh, whether they're gonna spread it out or just pass it along to a single node. That makes it much harder for somebody who's monitoring the entire network to figure out where that transaction originated from in the network, because just because it gets broadcasted out from a node doesn't mean that that node, uh, that the transaction belongs to that node, if, it's, if you see what I mean. Okay, so, you know, maybe we can like kind of walk through how this uh, dandelion process works. So what will essentially happen here is, let's say, you know, we have this large network and I'm the one who's creating this transaction. I'll go ahead and send it, you know, maybe to Michael. Michael, you'll send it to Daniel. And then Daniel has this like seed thing that like it tells him when it's time to propagate it right and so he'll be the one to like push it to the rest of the network 
But where is this aggregation happening? Is it that like, let's say, if it just so happens that the two stems of a dandelion intersect, then that person, whoever had that intersection of two of the stems, that they'll like be the one who's locally aggregating it? Yeah, so, so uh, there will be, you know, at every epoch, uh, there, there will be a couple of nodes that will be fluffing nodes. And uh, a lot of transactions are going to end up at those fluffing nodes. And at that point, they get aggregated and before they get fluffed up. Okay, so there is some mechanism of like, so the, 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 the path of the stem isn't just completely random to the peer-to-peer -peer network. They are kind of moving towards some aggregator nodes who will do the aggregation there. But they, it changes. Uh, after we, every epoch, it kind of resets and everybody kind of do, do new connections. And so that's, how that's do you... A, at least that's, that's how it's done in Dandelion++, which is, uh, uh, I think, what, what we're, we're actually... In, uh, I think we have a, a simpler version implemented in, in, uh, in Green today. It's like the original Dandelion paper. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think uh, with version 1.1, uh, I, I think it's going to come out uh, uh, in, in that approach. How are these nodes chosen exactly? They're, they're chosen at random amongst themselves. Like there's a coin flip on each side. Am I going to fluff it or am I going to pass it along the stem? And that's just in the, in the current simpler version. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the, the reason that there's a, a 1.1 of this coming out is because um, it, 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 it kind of reduces the, the chances or the occurrence, the chances for, for any aggregation to happen. So for aggregation to happen here, you need a transaction to come into one node and then, and, into, and then to be stemmed through another node that has some other transactions in it, right? So what Daniel just described for Dandelion++ is a way of, of ensuring that more aggregation happens in the, the Dandelion network. So what happens if there's not a lot of usage on the network and there are not enough transactions to actually compound? Yeah, if there's not a lot of usage, then, then transactions don't get, don't get aggregated. Um, I mean, you'll see, I mean, it's early days for the chain, so I mean, you'll see a lot of blocks there. It's, you know, one transaction and there are two transactions and there are one plus the Coinbase. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the more users there are on the network, the more transactions that are going around, the, the greater the chances of, of there being aggregation. So it, it is, you, it is definitely related to the you know the, the amount of usage on the network. I mean, that's also why we're building it. Uh, I mean, uh, we're not building it for for kind of like low usage and see where we go. Uh, we don't really have any interest in doing that. There's nobody kind of uh, that, that, that gets better off uh, for for doing that. Instead, you know, everybody's kind of working towards this idea that. This is going to be, uh, a, you know, a big, well-used uh, protocol. Uh, that's the assumption. Sure. So, uh, as you just briefly mentioned, mentioned Grin actually launched uh, January. That was last month. Um, so, uh, Grin is actually the implementation of Wimble Wimble that both of you are working on, and we kind of skipped over about this. Uh, we skipped over this like a little bit. Um, there's also another um, implementation named Beam. Um, would you can can you tell us how Beam and uh, Grin actually differ from each other? The Grin was launched in uh, October 2016, uh, I think. Uh, and uh, Beam is a second uh, Mimblewimble implementation that was announced, I think, in May or June, something, uh, 20, 2018. Uh, and uh, and they, they, do a, uh, they take a different approach, uh, governance structure, uh, organizational. They are, uh, there's a development company building that, uh, does it in a different language, uh, has some, uh, adopted some of the approaches that we do in Grin. Uh, but they are on their own kind of separate path. It's not like a fork or anything. It's their own separate project. And, uh, you know, we, we in general, you know, of course, there's going to be many uh, different Bimble implementations. Uh, if anybody who wants to can put, put one together. Uh, so, so I think that's, 
that's it. But, but it's, it's very kind of it's a very different structure in terms of how how they are organized and, and what their approach is to some of the things. So is there like, you know, what is the like sort of the relationship between the teams? Is there like a lot of information sharing? Because I know, for example, you know, the Grin team is that one who kind of came up with this idea of Dandelion and so then Beam kind of adopted it. But then I know there's also some like interesting innovation happening from the Beam side where, you know, I was reading some of their documentation and they have like a mechanism of sort of these, uh, the kernels we were talking about that are being left in the chain. They have a method of like kind of uh, pruning those out and incentivizing the pruning of those. Um, they also have this like bulletin board thing that they were talking about where like it helps with this interactivity needed. So uh, is there any, any like, what is the kind of the communication between these teams and like, you know, any plans to kind of like port over some of their features back into Grin? Right. So uh, just to point out that, you know, Dandelion is not our invention. It's uh, Julia Fanti and, and some other uh, researchers that have uh, put together that protocol. Uh, and uh, yeah, there, there are there are different you know in general uh, the the Grin project interacts with any team or any kind of any individual or researchers uh, that want to interact and want to share knowledge in, in like an earnest way. We we do have some uh, kind of communication with the Beam uh, team as well. They donated to our uh, uh, to to our fund. Uh, we we don't have like a, 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 a we have a, like a good relationship with them. Uh, generally though, what what kind of I think Grin is focused on is is to do this very kind of minimal uh, implementation uh, that doesn't have a lot of overhead and doesn't have a lot of keeping things simple. And, uh, and uh, we're, we're definitely open for influences and new ideas uh, when they come out and, and when they do, we evaluate them, we vet them. And, and then, you know, if they're good, we, we adopt them. Any thoughts on the current, like some of the ones that they've already started on, like this bulletin board or the uh, kernel fusion and stuff? Maybe the, the the kind of the fundamental difference here, I think, is that that Grin is, is has adopted a community approach to, to to a lot of things. So, for instance, like the bulletin board that you just talked about is basically it's it's a way of dealing with the the interaction problem that we were talking about earlier. Um, how do you how do people interact? How does it work if someone's not available? How do you send funds to somebody without without them being around or online to perform the transaction? And and I mean, Grin have our Beam rather has a what I'd maybe say prescriptive approach to this, right? You built a bulletin board and, and you do your transaction here, and this is the solution. Grin's approach is to leave that up to the community and other authors. So, for instance, for the, that particular problem, our approach is to provide a very decent set of wallet tools to do the fundamentals of building transactions and putting wallets together, and then let the community come up with different ways of handling solutions to these problems according to different needs. You know, some people might might only want to meet in dark alleys with bits of paper and, and that's how they want to do their transactions. And that's fine, we can support that. Other people might want to come along and build um, some solutions on top of that. Like there's a um, there's a there's an open source project called uh, Wallet 713 that has another solution built on top of that. Each time you, you add a solution like this on top of Mimblewimble, you're also adding, you know, you're, you're actually lessening the security and confidentiality a bit as well. So that has to be taken into consideration. So I, I think like our fundamental approach is community. We're, we're, we're trusting the community to take Grin as the core layer and then build build custom solutions or whatever suits various groups on top of that. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's exactly uh, as Michael says. And I mean, the, that's the beauty of it uh, because it's not prescriptive. And, and it lets, you know, basically the community figure it out and try different approaches and see what is 
the one that's going to get traction and usage. Uh, I, I'm, uh, you know, for full disclosure, I'm, I'm involved in, in the Wallet 713 and, and the Grimbox transaction protocol that we're doing. And the reason why we did it was because we saw a need for it, an opportunity to do it uh, that would make sense and add some value. So we do that. And as a result, there's now, you know, many, you know, there's another team now doing, uh, building on top of Grim, right? And I think if you look at it, you know, if you take a, like a macro view on it, uh, it has to be many different development teams uh, trying to solve specific problems that they have, uh, you know, make things better in the usage of a chain, uh, rather than like this reliance on on like a single uh, entry point, like it's a single central kind of company or or whatever organization it would be. Uh, I don't think that's a scalable approach because uh, you know it becomes yeah you need to let like many attempts kind of to, to to solve the same problem and see which one works basically. It's like the bazaar versus cathedral discussion, right, in, in software development. So, you know, we talked a lot about uh, Mimblewimble and this dandelion stuff. But, you know, and I know another area that, you know, the Grin team has been kind of like developing heavily is, uh, you know, kind of innovating on this, like, you know, proof of work algorithm, as well as like, you know, experimenting with like new uh, issuance models and inflation models. And so, uh, you know, I know you guys are using this proof of work algorithm called cuckoo cycle and like you know it, it kind of started with this like desire to try to create like an asic resistance hashing algorithm but then over time it seems that like the goals of this uh hash proof of work algorithm design have changed heavily and now there's this like you know complex like two system version and can you kind of explain to uh what's going on here sure uh, so, so it's like a high level kind of summary of, uh, there's like a family of proof of work algorithms created by John Trump, uh, called the, you know, the cuckoo cycle, uh, family, uh, which basically the, 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 the algorithm, the, the whole objective is you have like this bunch of, of nodes, connections, uh, between, uh, uh, different, uh, uh units in a, in a hash table, in a cuckoo hash table. And, and the objective is basically to find, uh, like a 42, uh, 42 loop, loop that connects 42 nodes. Uh, and that's a solution for your, your proof of work. Uh, and and as, a, as a description of what we do today, we have basically two proof of works. Uh, one is the uh, an, an ASIC resistant uh, uh, algorithm, which is kind of optimized towards GPUs. Uh, and the other one is an ASIC targeted uh, algorithm, which is optimized towards ASIC development, right? And when we launched, uh, the the balance between these two proof of work was that 90% of mining rewards was going to the GPU, and 10% of mining rewards are going to the uh, ASIC-tuned algorithm. Over time, uh, in in the course of two years, this is all this this balance is going to shift completely, so that 100% uh, of mining rewards are going to uh, ASIC-tuned. So in two years' time. Uh, the idea is that everybody's going to be mining on the ASIC-tuned algorithm. Originally, as you pointed out, uh, there was one proof of work, uh, Cuckoo Cycle. Uh, and when John first initially revealed the, the proof of work algorithm, it was believed that it could run, uh, you know, that you could mine efficiently or competitively using a mobile phone. Uh, it's, it's a, it, 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 but over time, uh, optimizations were discovered uh, that basically meant that uh, CPU uh, mining was ruled out as efficient, uh, and, uh, and and there was like big advantages for uh, 
ASIC miners to, you know, there was a lot of opportunities to build efficient ASIC miners uh, using the cuckoo cycle algorithm. Now, the reason why we moved away from, from a single proof of work into two proof of works was that this algorithm was known and it was available, uh, uh, widely known before we launched the coin. And we had uh, received several very credible uh, indications that ASICs were being built for this uh, algorithm, uh, which would at day one of the launch of the coin, completely taken over the hash power and kind of centralize the entire mining, uh, which we didn't really want. We don't even think that was a good idea. Uh, we do, however, see that because of all these, uh, you know, time doesn't stand still. And what we've learned since, you know, John first published that, uh, that uh, algorithm and, and since the beginning of Grin is that, you know, ASICs are inevitable and there will always be a way to kind of do uh, uh, if optimizations. And even if you're not going to optimize on the ASICs, you're going to be able to optimize, you know, the guy mining with a GPU at home is not going to be as efficient as, as the person who's connected to, uh, to a dam in, in China and has, uh, you know, 10,000 GPUs. So there's going to be a lot of efficiencies, and, and that's inevitable. Uh, however, uh, trying to launch a coin in a fair manner uh, in 2019 puts a couple of problems uh, to that. So you need to have a way to basically bootstrap the network in a way that gives people some chance to mine uh, fairly to the point where, you know, can, over time you can gradually shift over uh, to, to this ASIC-friendly algorithm uh, and give ASIC manufacturers enough leeway and enough time to prepare for that and have multiple ASIC manufacturers maybe build at the same time uh, in order to create as competitive of a marketplace as possible for these, uh, uh, for these ASICs. Uh, it was a very kind of long answer, but, but uh, that, that's kind of my view on it. Michael, uh, you know, if you have anything to add. The, the thing about the, the grain and our proofs of work is, is ASICs are going to happen anyways, and that, that doesn't matter. You can, you can try and avoid it. You can try and design an algorithm that, that you know, can't be done. It, it won't happen. They're going to happen at some point. So the best thing you can do is try and make it as fair for everybody and try and actually make it your algorithm simple to specify for ASICs manufacturers to allow more of them um, to allow a, a, a market. I mean, ASICs themselves aren't necessarily evil. They're actually, you know, the, the closer you get to some, this is something, again, we're back to Andrew Polster, a paper he called it the thermodynamic limit. If you had a machine that was absolutely the most optimized it could possibly could be for proof of work algorithm and everyone has one of those machines then every time that's actually the best the best case for mining there is so by encouraging ASIC development and hopefully there will be a you know a few options to choose from they'll be readily available um this should actually help secure the network as I was yeah I lost my point there ASIC mining ASICs themselves aren't evil it's when they're all under control of a single entity or a single corporation and that's a centralization pressure. So by trying to encourage as many as many hardware developers as we can to develop ASICs, then we're hoping for a more fair market. So you went with um, the two proof of work uh, system in order to ensure continuous decentralization throughout the life of Grin. But um, there, are, there are disadvantages that come with proof of work. Um, and uh, this is why many people are talking about uh, switching to proof of stake for for many different uh, chains is this something this that is uh, in a concern for you as Grin developers as well, or are you firmly committed to proof of work? No, we're, we're very firmly committed to proof of work at the moment. Nobody has proven that proof of stake um, will secure that will secure a network as well as proof of work. 
nobody has proven that you know it is entirely fair like it, it very much rewards people who already have a stake and proof of stake in it so no the, the the green team at the moment is very much proof of work only yeah as someone who's been working on proof of stake for like you know two years now i actually completely agree with you i don't think there's been any evidence that like proof of stake can properly secure a network and especially it seems that like you know green seems to be one of I've heard this story where it's like, you know, Grin seems to be like the next best bet at money other than Bitcoin. And like, you know, if you want to create decentralized money, you know, you need to have had a similar origin story and anonymous founder. And like, and so if you're creating, I, I just don't think proof of stake works properly as an issuance mechanism. For, you know, who, it's, you know, who knows what, what, what will be in 10 years time in general, uh, the, the team and the community in general is open to any new technology as long as it's kind of makes sense. And right. at, this, at this stage, uh, proof of stake doesn't make sense. Uh, as you correctly uh, pointed out as well, you know, you could, we couldn't have launched with proof of, proof of stake because it creates huge problems right. of how you distribute the coins fairly. Uh, and and right. at that point, you know, in terms of actually initial distribution of coins, as far as I know, I haven't heard of any better uh, you know, ways to, to do it fairly than, than proof of work. So speaking of this like initial distribution and issuance, so I guess two part question here. One is, you know, this issuance mechanism, you know, you guys have an experiment, like a new monetary policy that I haven't seen. I've seen, The only other coin I've seen this like similar monetary policy in is Dogecoin. But essentially this idea of unlimited supply where it's but constant issuance. So it's like, you know, you have this like it fun, like little time is money meme going on where it's like one one grin per second or 60 grin per minute. And, but until the end of time. So like there's no fixed cap like there is in like Bitcoin or Litecoin or any of these other money currencies that are trying to become base money, for example. And so kind of what led you down to what, 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 who made that decision of like trying this new policy? Um, As to me, I think it's something that that the team arrived at actually actually fairly early on in development. um, When we're talking about various models and schedules of how to do this, Um, I think most importantly, um, okay, a few things. I mean, this is a big can of worms and you get all sorts of hate mail for any time you, you, you start talking about this. The, the model that came up originally by Satoshi in Bitcoin, as in there were going to be a fixed number of Bitcoins, it's going to be an entirely deflationary system. That's, that's great and all. There, there seems to be a, a wide held, widely held belief out there that this was handed down to him on a tablet from God at some point, and this is the way it should be for all time. There's a lot of problems with that approach, and you've seen that in Bitcoin. Everybody's seen this with the, the hyperdeflation that you see in Bitcoin. Uh, now, you know, the paper said it was supposed to be a, a, a digital cash, and it's turned into a store of value, and that's the story now. So um, that approach is quite problematic. The other thing is nobody yet knows whether a fee market on its own is going to be enough to secure a network uh, when the, the the fees from Bitcoin become too low. So we we think that the approach we've taken, which is just a constant block emission, 60 grins per block once a minute, forever. Um, and, by, and by the way, this is this is this is actually quite conservative as far as um, uh, putting a currency out there. I mean, the the inflation rate becomes zero, you know, 30 years on, and you're barely minting. I mean, imagine if you could only print 60 US dollars a minute. Like you'd have hyperdeflation, you know. Um, th- this is um, actually a rather conservative approach, and you know it is it is new in the cryptocurrency world. I don't think it's it's that radical. 
Um, I think it's easy to understand. I think um, it will it will help secure the network when fees run out. It will help it will help um, people to use Grin as as money as opposed to hoarding it because they're afraid it's going to be worth far more tomorrow. Um, so yeah, so that's that's kind of where where can't speak for the entire team, but that's basically where we stand on it at this point. And ultimately, right. it's, it's very simple, uh, right? Uh, it's very very easy to explain, uh, very easy to understand. Uh, it's it's hard to kind of. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of arguments as you know well well constructed uh, as to why it is a problem. And since then, it is you know a very simple structure. We, we like it. It's elegant. Right. Yeah. You know. I think this whole time is money meme. I think actually it it will work. I think it's easy to explain. Um, and you know, I think there's a lot. It'll be very interesting to see how this fair start plays out like you know i don't think we've i think the last time we saw something similar to a fair start but clearly not as fair was like the zcash start and even that was you know they have their whole like developer side of things but um you know and i remember like what happened what i remember uh my roommate uh my, my ex-roommate uh she like you know was really hyped about the grin mining and i know like there was like i don't know i've heard like crazy figures about like vcs like putting hundreds of millions of dollars or something into like, I don't know if that, that much, but crazy amounts of money into like, you know, uh, mining ventures very early on in uh grin when it like started with a zero supply. So uh, it'll be very interesting to see how this new fair start and issuance mechanism works out. Um, so now that we're uh, kind of drawing towards the close of the episode, uh, you know, just want to talk, maybe ask a, a few, one or two questions a little bit about, you know, a bit about the future of grin and what the future roadmap is and whatnot and so um one of the questions that you know often comes up about grin is that in order to make this mimblewimble feature work we kind of had to remove bitcoin script uh because you know you can't it's not part it doesn't work with the aggregation and so how will we what is the plan here for you know does this mean that you know is it possible to do multi-sigs on on grain, will it be possible to do HTLCs, atomic swaps? Is any of this possible on the roadmap? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, atomic swaps with both Ethereum and Bitcoin have been done before. Um, multi-sig is definitely, it's, it's possible. We know how to do it. Um, it's just, I don't think it's been implemented in the code, but we certainly have kind of the foundation in there to do that. Um, other stuff, you know, smart contracts, we've talked about script to scripts a bit. Those are, are essentially ways of, of kind of enforcing enforcing the usual conditions you'd be enforcing in a contract without having to have a contract in particular in place. So yeah, they're definitely possible. I won't say we have the answers to all of them at this point. There's certainly a lot of research outstanding. And if you, you kind of look through our, our site and what we have there, you know, there's a, there's a list there of, of technologies that we're looking into and researching how to do this. And yeah, that, that's basically the future. I mean, the future is going to be for us will be, you know, building the tools to support community building on top of Grin and on top of Mimblewimble, as well as, you know, slow and steady research as to, you know, other technologies we can be putting in here. Um, again, like atomic swaps, uh, some, you know, lightning-like network on top of that. So yeah, that's, that's kind of very briefly what our future looks like. And so back to that question about the fair start and like, um, you know, so the Zcash team with their fair start, they funded themselves by uh, giving themselves a, like a developer cut of all the block awards. Uh, you know, Satoshi funded his fair start by like, you know, 
do it like mining like crazy when like Bitcoin first came out and because it just wasn't very popular. But like I said, you know, lots of outside money was poured into Grin mining from very early on. And so what is the funding model here now for the Grin developers? How is this going to be sustainable? There's no pre-mine, nothing like that. So Grin is 100% uh, community funded. Uh, we, uh, you know, live by, I mean, Michael is funded through donations. Uh, the, there's a dev fund uh, and a security audit fund uh, that raises donations for, for specific purposes. Uh, but, but it relies 100% on uh, donations from the community and from, from miners and other companies active in the space to contribute. Uh, and, and I think, you know, you touched upon a very important thing there that, yeah, you know, how, what is fair? And and uh, you know uh, what what is what is a fair launch? Uh, and and I think uh, Grin has has probably been one of the more fairest launches that have been around because uh, simply because of the fact that you know it, it's had a lot of attention, a lot of eyeballs on it from day one, uh, which a lot of other projects really didn't have, uh, including Bitcoin early on. Uh, and and uh, you know equal opportunity doesn't mean equal outcome. And uh, you know we we welcome. Anybody to come and mine, uh, you know, whether they're VCs or not, or whether they're users, and whether welcome any any anybody to come and participate in the project, uh, and um, and that's his strength, I think. Uh, it's the reason why I got got involved, you know, a year ago, uh, because it's very easy to participate. It's very easy to become active in the community when there's nobody else uh, kind of making, you know, having an advantage over you, earning more money or or something because of your contribution. Uh, anybody who's here and want to con contribute is actually just doing that because they believe in the project and and they want to do so, uh, and 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 that makes it very easy for new people to come in, come in and, and get involved. And it becomes also a self selection uh, exercise. I noticed like we have a great community, and I think part of it is because there's no get rich quick scheme here, uh, and and uh, you know we don't have to pay people to do to do work. Uh, it, it it takes care of itself, and and ultimately as well, you know I'm not. Some people ask you know and there's always this kind of questions is it the right way is it sustainable will it last and so on it, well it's completely up to the community right if, if nobody wants to fund us uh, uh then you know maybe maybe there will be fewer development developers and less development going on if, if nobody cares about that then i guess it wasn't very popular in the first place but if people do care about that and they want to actually uh, take a grin forward then anybody can participate and do that so it's like a, it's like a non-issue for me you know in a way Okay, so you don't see any issues with, um, I mean, I can see how this story right now is super appealing. So uh, it's when currently no one actually makes huge amounts of money building businesses on Grin. But once they're actually active, um, uh, people who actively benefit from the Grin network and uh, build business on businesses on it, do you think the, the uh, volunteers will still be there to actually build the infrastructure or will they feel exploited and will this turn into a tragedy of the common situ situation? I don't know. I think, it, I, I think it depends a little bit. I think, it, but I think it depends on the businesses, how they act in the community, what, what kind of, uh, uh, how they operate. Uh, as you know, if I, if I was starting a business, uh, you know, and, and, and you know, the, the stuff we're doing, for example, with, with Grimbox and Vault 713, it's all fully open for anybody to use. Uh, if you're a business and you make money off Grim, it's kind of in your interest to contribute to the debt fund, right? Because, you know, it's your protocol that you're making money from. So it kind of makes sense for you to ensure that somebody's looking after the protocol on the protocol level. And so far, what we're seeing is that exchanges, mining pools, 
you know, uh, uh, proof of work uh, mining uh, software providers are uh, contributing and, and they're making contributions. I can't say whether it's going to be enough or not. Uh, it's very early days. We'll, we'll see about that. But, uh, you know, it, it really is up to everybody else, everybody involved to actually, excuse me, to contribute. And, uh, and uh, I, I don't, I'm not too worried about it. And, and the, you know, just because there are companies there that make money, uh, rightly so, they should be doing that if they're offering value to the community. Uh, that shouldn't preclude a community member to, um, to contribute if they want to on their spare time on, on something else, some other corner of the, of, the, of the protocol. But the difference is, I guess, with other setups is that if we, for example, as developers, we're taking 20% tax on all coins ever mined, uh, that creates a very weird uh, relationship between us and the rest of the community, right? Because also suddenly we have a stake in improving the value of the coin, which is not necessarily what is in the interest of the community, right? We, we suddenly, if we, if we get 20% of all the coins, then it's really in our interest to just raise the price of the coin all the time and, and kind of focus on that. Whereas maybe what we should be looking at is adoption or, or you know, getting, making more users using the coin. Uh, that, that doesn't necessarily drop up the price of the coin though. Uh, do you see what I mean? It, it kind of has like a weird uh, um, uh, incentive alignment. Yeah, I, I agree that it's really difficult to find models that, incent uh, that, that align incentives uh, well. Um, but saying uh, you trust in the good um, in companies, um, to me, that, that seems a little naive. I mean, if, if, if you look at uh, the off-chain world, for instance, Apple massively builds on public infrastructure and Apple can only exist because um, there are structures structures that preceded it, like uh, the, the judicial system and the um, road infrastructure and um, the internet. Um, but and Apple, Apple, chooses, uh, yeah, and Apple chooses to not pay tax. So basically, this is like the like major corporations have ways of, of circumventing paying tax. Uh, and, and, and I mean, they... In principle, they're liable to pay tax, but somehow they still end up paying very little or close to no taxes, right? I mean, I can't comment on that, and I can't comment on whether Apple pays a lot of tax or not. Uh, uh, but, but I guess the, the point is that, generally speaking, the whole purpose of Grin uh, as a project was to be very minimal on the, like, the top layer protocol, right? In order for that to kind of make sense, intuitively, it means that you know, other uh, entities underneath need to kind of step up to the plate and deliver products and services uh, to, to help, to facilitate that, because it's very minimal on the top layer. Because it's very minimal on the top layer, it shouldn't be you know, needing 20% of all the coins in mind to sustain itself, right? It, it, it's the whole, that, that's the kind of the, the whole, whole idea of it. I appreciate the idea, and I think it's super idealistic, and I really um, hope it works. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm not holding against you, I'm just, uh, yeah, I'm, ju I'm just asking whether you're, you're, you're working. Yeah, I mean, and I, I get also like, you know, as I tell companies, because there are a lot of companies that kind of approach us and they, they kind of say, hey, we want to get involved. We want to do this, we want to do that. How can we do, how can we get more involved in Grin? And I say that, like, if you contribute to the Community Dev Fund, it's like the greatest way to, to create goodwill and, ad and marketing for your company in, in the community, right? By, by just kind of making active contributions. And of course, companies can choose not to do that. But I mean, that stands for themselves. Uh, and and I, I know, you know, I understand that you might think it sounds idealistic or naive, but I actually don't think there's a better way to do this. Uh, I, I don't think it's better to, 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 to establish like a debt tax or something. I, I don't think that's going to lead to longer term success uh, for, for, for Grin and, and what its long term objectives are. If you, if you start off with a debt tax and that's how you're going to fund 
then you will always be paying to developers to work on the chain for those reasons. Like, why am I going to put my time in to make someone else uh, to have someone else profit off the end of it? I, I know it, it, it kind of sounds a bit naive, and there, there seems to be I've seen criticism on the internet of no, it's not going to work because you need to pay developers. But I think we've it's been around for two years now, and the interest is still growing. Um, personally, I mean, I've been funded for for the past year. And I'm funded again for the next next six or seven months to work on it full time, you know, at a, at a, a regular developer salary. Um, and and I think, and, and this this is early days, like before the chain was even launched, and people had their businesses that they they were going to build on top of Green. So I think the early signs are encouraging. Anyhow, I think what we're seeing with exchanges is an example, right? We're not actually. I mean, we welcome and encourage all exchanges to to list us that want to, and if they have questions, we'll help them and so on. But we're not really chasing exchanges. We're not applying for exchanges. We're not filling out any documents. There's no legal entity. Nobody can give any money for for listing fees or anything to exchanges because we're broke. We don't have any money, right? So instead, exchanges list us uh, without us asking and without uh, any any preconditions. But if we had like a, a, a pot of gold. That we were sitting on, uh, which was like equating to to a chunk of, of the total coin's mind, then I think the story would have been very different. Yeah. So um, I mean, and certainly there have been open source projects that have been going on for tens of years, um, and they're still around. So uh, um, I'm interested to see what the future holds for you guys. Thank you for coming on. Okay. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode. We release new episodes every week. You can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a Google Home or Alexa device, you can tell it to listen to the latest episode of the Epicenter podcast. Go to epicenter.tv slash subscribe for a full list of places where you can watch and listen. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for the newsletter so you get new episodes in your inbox as they're released. If you want to interact with us, the guests, or other podcast listeners, you can follow us on Twitter. And please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps people find the show, and we're always happy to read them. So thanks so much, and we look forward to being back next week.